0: Hey, this is Broadway of the Manhattan clan, and you're listening to Voices from the Erie. And now I'm off to prepare for a romantic dinner for me and Angela, and then we're going to curl up in front of the fireplace with a good book. The story is told, though who can say if it be true,
1: of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story.
2: It is an age of darkness, superstition, and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of
0: gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast.
2: Welcome back to Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and join me as usual is my partner in crime, my other co-host, uh, Jennifer L. Anderson.
3: Hello, everyone.
2: And with luck, God willing, this particular episode of Voices from the Eerie won't get pulled from rotation for a decade and then a censored version added. And I would like to introduce the co-creator of Gargoyles, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And I'm very happy to introduce a very special guest, the voice of Broadway himself, Mr. Bill Fagrebaki. Hi. We're, we're so glad to have you. It's a real honor. We had Tom Adcox two shows ago. We had Jeff Bennett last show. So three for three, all three members of the trio.
3: It's such <laughs> a thrill to get all three of you guys. So happy.
0: My brother.
3: Yes.
2: <laughs> Your Rookery brothers, yes. <laughs> so, Bill, Bill, we would like to get to know you for a little bit. How did you uh, get into acting, particularly voice acting?
0: Well. uh, you know, I, I stumbled into theater when I was in college, actually, and I just quit football. Um, and that was, a that was just good fortune on my part. Um, and, uh, so i um, went to, I studied theater, went to New York, did theater mostly, then, uh, got a, uh, a sitcom called coach. And so I moved out here and, um, Couple years into that, uh, my agent called me and said, uh, hey, there's a cartoon that wants a, a dog to sound like your character on Coach. Do you want to go in and read, on, read for it? And, uh, and I just thought, well, if I don't get it, wouldn't that be terrible? And, uh, but I, I did wind up getting it. And, uh, and that was, um, uh, a cartoon called, um, uh, Beethoven, which was based on the movie about the St. Bernard. And that, that was a Saturday morning cartoon and uh, uh uh that that's showing my age, I guess. There used to be this thing called Saturday morning cartoons. Um uh but uh so that was my You're first cartoon movies. gig. <laughs> okay, got it. and then uh happily for me I, I like I started uh auditioning for more and uh and was uh lucky enough to get in Gargoyles, which was my um I'm pretty sure that was my second uh, animated series and uh, got to meet Greg and be a part of his creation. Awesome.
3: I have to I have to confess that I lived in Southern California at the time, and we used to go all the time to watch tapings of Coach. No, it was way, really? All the time. It was one of our favorite things to do. I loved it. Wow.
0: Cool. We've been in the same room together.
3: Several times. Several times, yes. And and you live to tell about it. I'm very happy.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I remember, Coach, I used to catch reruns of it in syndication in the early 90s. It would come on after Cheers on my local affiliate. Because
3: he's young and we're old.
0: (laughs) Not that young. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) Just watching something in syndication dates you, I think.
3: (laughs) Let's
2: talk about the development of Broadway as a character and what you brought to the part. Greg, Bill, this is for both of you.
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about this before, the casting process, but, um, you know, Bill and Tom at that were the uh, keys to us, A, figuring out at all what a gargoyle sounded like. Um, We you know... Created the show and we had no idea what sort of gargoyle sound. And, um, and Tom came in, you know, and he's got this gravel in his voice, but he's, you know, uh, high, higher pitch. And Bill came in with that same kind of gravel, but obviously at, at the low end. And suddenly we're like, well, of course, gargoyles have a bit of gravel, <laughs> you know, of course they do. And, um, and that was you know, extremely important to our whole casting process all the way down the line. Um, and in terms of Broadway, you know, where we started with the character uh, in our comedy development um, was just, okay, he's the, the big, strong, goofy one who likes to eat. But Bill brought so much uh, humanity in essence to the role that Broadway quickly sort of evolved into something much more, uh, someone was much more depth to, to him. And so, for example, when, you know, Angela joined the cast and, and, you know, at first it seemed like all three of the trio were interested in her, It you know, we had this long discussion, Gary Sperling and I, about who do we think she would ultimately go for, uh, if any of them. And it just became clear that, you know, Broadway was the one with the most sensitivity, the one that would appeal to her the most. And and that, in essence, is something that Bill brought to the role because we started out with a guy who just liked to eat a lot. Um, And obviously, we're never planning to keep it there as being that shallow, but um, Bill helped us find the direction to
0: go. Wow, it's always interesting to hear uh, the production uh, perspective on on that because, uh, you know, when you're when you're on the performing side, you're, 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 you're just in there with your fellow cast members, uh, trying to dive into and live in the dialogue and the words on the page. And, uh, and they put together such a great cast. And of course, Keith David was, uh, just an epic. He was like the foundation for everything, the way I saw it. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and getting to work with Jeff and Tom and, and, and Jeff was, you know, just, one of the one of the rock stars one of the incredible talents, the voiceover um he's he's in a very small group um so so there's him and his versatility and then uh and i think tom and i were both kind of just like we were in our lanes and uh we, we just got to work off of each other and and you know, as with everything you do when you're an actor, it's all about the writing. You know, what is, where where does the writing take you? And um, and uh, you know, most animation you don't you don't always get a, a strong sense of growth and development. Um, and and we we sure did with Gargoyles. It was uh, very fulfilling.
3: Yeah, like Broadway very much starts off like that stereotype that that you know. Uh, that they were talking about but he ends up just being uh there's so many more layers to him and he's just got the biggest heart of all of them and um just so lovable and so smart Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah
3: yeah
2: Yeah. Broadway is definitely the epitome of don't judge a book by its cover for various reasons we've described. Most of the fandom, well, pretty much all the fandom latched onto him pretty quickly. Every now and then he gets someone who just looks at him on the surface and playing about the character. And then I'll say, watch a couple more episodes, please. He's a great, very multi-layered character. I love him. He's terrific. I mean, and I'm, maybe I'm a little biased because I portrayed him in one of the radio plays at the Gathering of the Gargoyles conventions we had. I did nowhere near as good a job as you, Bill, not even in the same galaxy. But I have an affection for the character. Oh, that's
0: great. I hope you enjoyed that. I did.
3: This particular episode was pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, the whole subject of it... Uh, uh it was completely like not something that you would uh, were seeing on TV especially you know the afternoon cartoons and stuff like that um what uh Greg what made you like think that this was a an episode that needed to be made uh
1: you know I think it was a discussion with uh it started as a discussion with Michael Reed um and you know we wanted to do coming out of the pilot you know, we very consciously wanted to do one episode East that focused on Lexington, Brooklyn, and Broadway. And for Broadway's story, um, there is something, uh, and I don't think of this as shallow, but there's something childlike about Broadway that I think are positive. Um,
3: Innocence.
1: Yeah. And so the idea that he would, you know, that things like going to the movies is something new for him. Um, and that the dividing line between what's real about a movie and what's fake, the sort of harmlessness of violence was, um, interesting to us. And the idea that, um, this idea about gun safety was just, uh, Sort of running around, and I think both Michael and and our heads, because we had rules about what we could do with guns and what we couldn't do. We weren't a network film, so we didn't have network BSNC, But Disney had its own BSNC executive, and we had a great one actually, really, uh, who understood what we were trying to do. Uh, her name was Adrienne Bell. We've mentioned her before. Um, and the whole idea is that we would show consequences, not that we couldn't do violent stuff, but we as long as we showed the consequences of that violence. But we also had limitations to what we could do with realistic um, guns, you know, what you call imitatable behavior. And so the idea was to be mm. ultimate in horrible imitatable behavior, which is to show someone picking up a gun um, and playing with it like it were a toy. And we were going to show the consequences of it. And so uh, Michael and I came up with this story and we took it to Frank Parr, uh, and he loved it. And then um, someone, one of us, it might have been me, but it might have been one of the others, said, uh, yeah, there's no way they're going to let us do this. And um, I said, uh, that may be true, but I took it to our boss, uh, Gary Kreisel. Uh, Bill, I don't know if you remember Gary, but he was ran." Disney TV animation back in the day. And, um, and he said, all right, well, tell me the story. And I told it to him and he said, um, okay, go for it. And I think one thing that helped is that it, it, it isn't, I'm pretty anti gun myself. <laughs> I mean, flat out, I'm a, you know, a liberal dude from the San Fernando Valley and, um, I'm pretty anti gun, but this episode is not. Um, this episode is pro-gun safety, um, which I think is a subject that everyone can agree on, that, you know, if you're an adult, you don't leave a gun just hanging around. And and least kind of justified in her doing so, because A, um, she's a cop, she has a good reason to have that gun, and B, she lives alone. It doesn't occur to her. She doesn't have kids in the house. She doesn't even have, you know, uh, a roommate. It doesn't occur to her that she needs to secure that gun. Um, but adults should secure firearms and kids should not be picking them up and playing with them as if they are toys. And that I think is something that pretty much everyone can agree on. And so it was at the time surprisingly non controversial. We were sort of, um, what we say crying to receive all sorts of flack about the episode. And the reverse happened. Um, we actually got this great write-up in TV Guide, and um, there's a story I can probably tell here. Some stills here. I have no idea if you remember this, but the press back in the day were always on our side with Gargoyle. We always got great reviews, and we got great um, publicity for the show. Maybe not as much as. I would have liked, but then I, what I found is that, uh, every producer always wishes the show got more publicity. But, um, <laughs> one of the main reasons that we got great publicity is that we did an event where we showed a clip at the universal Saradon and attending the event was Gary Chrysler, my boss, myself, um, and three of our, uh, actors on the show, uh, Ed Asner, Johnson, Frakes, and Bill. And, um, Bill, do you remember this at all? Yes, I do. Bring any Unusual. Right. So we showed this clip and we, and I had gotten them to get these huge speakers. I mean, just massive speakers for the space. And we pumped the volume all the way up and showed this clip and it's really short. Um, and it echoes out at the end with Goliath roaring and all this stuff. And when it ended, we had like pin-drop silence from everybody. And it's one of these moments where you don't know, are they quiet because they are blown away or quiet because they're horrified, you know? And um, someone asked, one of the reporters tending asked the question whether, you know, this is clearly a very different kind of show for Disney. Um, You know, is this appropriate for kids. Would you let your kids watch it? And, you know, um, it sort of goes down the line of us sitting up there and, um, you know, Ed's kids are my age. Um, So, you know, and even Gary's kids were, you know, in their teens. So it was like no big deal. And Jonathan and I, our wives were both pregnant at the time, but we didn't have we didn't have any Kids yet, so that sort of left the question in Bill's court. And Bill, do you remember what you said?
0: I think so. You go ahead.
1: Bill goes. Well, it's better than Barney, and this got a massive laugh. And I didn't really understand it at the time because I didn't have kids. But within a couple years, I understood it exactly. Which is that <laughs> every every parent who had suffered through hours and hours of barn and there were plenty of those in the audience of reporters we were facing
2: could,
1: could uh, relate to the idea of having something anything to show their kids that was better than pocket <laughs> and from that point on the reporters were always on our side <laughs> um, and so so in this episode, Came out, we got a lot of good press, and then uh, we were even written up in a book that was pretty negative about televised violence overall, but praised us because we showed the consequences of that violence. Um, Not just in this episode, but in the episodes that follow. At least it doesn't just come back in the next episode as if nothing had happened. Um, She's still recovering physically, uh, and and the fact that uh, she was shot causes her boss to uh, change policy with her. She'd been previously working alone without a partner. Now she's assigned a partner and boss won't let her, um, ditch that partner. And, um, so it, 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 be, that ability, uh, of us to show consequences, to build on the episodes that came before, um, in, specifically in this episode, um, out a lot of praise. And so it was ironic when later um they took this episode out of the rotation for years and years. And then when they put it back, even, even now I saw it last night on Disney Plus and they had there were still edits um no they've done. Uh yeah. Um, yeah,
3: just first, close so you don't see the blood and then covering the blood in, uh, in another scene.
1: Yeah, the first time we aired it, because we were so close to the wire in terms of getting it back from overseas and, and editing and doing post-production and getting it on the air. First time we aired it, there was a lot of blood. There was too much blood. And Frank and I chose to change it. Um, you know, when we had time to call retakes and got another take back, there was too much blood. And so from the second time it aired, there was less blood on the kitchen floor when Alicia goes down. Um, And some fans were like, oh, they censored you. And we're like, no, we did that because we felt, A, we didn't want it just to be like, ooh, look, look at all the blood. You know, like, isn't that cool? We wanted it to be horrifying, not a about the gore. And two, there was so much blood on the ground. It looked like she had completely bled out and that there was no way she could possibly survive this. And obviously she does survive it. Um, but what I noticed last night is that, yeah, they're either spots where you're in incredibly tight the picture doesn't hold up that well uh, when you push in that tight. Because um, this was obviously produced long before HD and watching this on an HD TV makes you cringe a little. Um, uh, so that you can't see the blood or there was another scene where the blood is colored black. So I think it's supposed to look like it's her long black hair on the floor. Um, and you were like, wow, getting shot really makes your hair grow uh um, Because there's a lot of hair. Uh, um, but uh, that was, so it's it, interesting to me that this was a show that uh, we got tons of praise for from family groups and all sorts of sources. Uh, Madeline Levine again wrote this book, Viewing Violence, which was very negative towards much of what was on TV violence wise and yet very positive about our show. Um and yet, you know, they took it off the air for a long time. They'd only air it once a year on Halloween after midnight. Oh, Lord. You're um, kidding. I'm not. And uh right. and it's now even though it's dispiriting. Yeah, even now that it's in the rotation, they've they've altered
3: it. Up. I'm, I'm just happy that it's back in the rotation because for so long it yeah, wasn't. Me
2: too. Yeah. When the show first went up on Disney+, Plus, this was the first episode I'd checked, and it was uncensored for the first year. I don't know what happened, but the second year of Disney+, Plus suddenly they posted the edited version. But the ironic thing about that is if you watch Enter Macbeth right after this, it has a previously on Gargoyles recap. The shot of Elisa in a pool of her own blood is right there, uncensored
0: well, well it well, it's really not even it, it, it's about the point of the story which was uh i mean what an ambitious um and relevant uh episode of a cartoon and how great that uh you and michael were able to proceed with it um that's really uh that's that's so commendable because yeah we just kind of uh we're just kind of when we consume television, we consume um, film, we consume other stories. Or we're we're just going along on this ride in the in the the cradle of a I don't know what is it almost a hundred gun deaths a day in our country, um, and it's right. a part of our culture that is it's uh, it's so toxic, but yet it's also Vital part of quote action unquote stories, you know. Um, so that's a wonderful. That was uh, uh, yeah. I I did. Uh, I watched it again. Thanks for the link. And uh, it was uh, it was it was great to see what you accomplished there, Greg. Um, impressive, and I'm really proud to be a part of it.
2: Michael Reeves'
1: script. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, obviously, it was a huge group effort i mean mm. uh michael wrote it and we had great people in japan animating it and directing it and um and you guys performing it i mean uh, uh there's some great stuff in there from you of course but you know thief and sally uh both have just you know it's heartbreaking moments um uh, and right. great support from everybody else, you
0: know. Well, well, but the portrayal, the portrayal of the family is, is really effective, uh, and affecting. Uh, that's the, uh, that's such an important thing to, it's such an important value to write into that story to portray that honest grief and thought and and then broadways not just guilt but shame. um uh, it's it, and and of course uh you know the the um the effect it has on goliath but um but 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 showing the family was i i think such uh and you very easily could have written that episode without that that could have you know but the 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 fact that you had that value in the story is was uh really powerful
3: as as an adult watching that for the first time that moment when they ask should we call in her sister from Arizona like that like hits you like you're like oh this is serious you know it it really was a uh just that one line like got my attention hard right
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, this was an opportunity for us. I mean, this is Broadway's story, you know, and as with the previous stories, we wanted to see Broadway uh, in relationship to Goliath. But it also really gave us uh, an opportunity to fill out, flesh out Elisa's life, which we hadn't done up to this point. we have seen her, we have seen that she was a cop, but she was a cop in essence in a vacuum. Um, so we See her at work, you know, with, and we see her being a cop outside of being the gargoyle's friend, you know, um, we see her boss um, and then we go to her house and we see, oh, she owns a cat. How about that? Did you know that? <laughs> um, and um, and then, you know, we put her in the hospital and, and oh, we even before we put her in the hospital, we see the family picture on, you know, in her mm-hmm. apartment. Uh, it mm-hmm. shows that she's got parents and she's got a brother and sister. Um, and then, yeah, we meet uh, Mom and Dad, which played by, you know, the amazing Nichelle Nichols and Michael Ort, Um And her brother, Derek, played by Rocky Farrell. Um, and then Maria Savez, as the boss is Rachel Ticketon and Dr. Sato uh, with Robert Ito. I mean, this had a, a terrific guest happening. I mean, we have a great group of regulars, but one of the things that was also great about Gargoyles is that well, you know, the actors we brought in as guests on this show were just were just stunning. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> like wow.
3: <laughs> it was kind of a, a guess who's guess who's gonna be the next like the guest on this week kind of like you're gonna know the voice.
0: No. Uh, yeah, what a great to see all the different guest actors come come through. That was really delightful. Uh,
1: uh, and here, you know, you just get tastes of them. You know, it, it's not a big Maria Chavez episode or even a big Diane Mazza episode. Um, but it gave us tastes of them, which allowed us to introduce them and build on them later. You even, he doesn't have any lines, but you even see, uh, her future partner, Matt Bluestone, driving in the car with Maria, um, midway through the episode. You don't know who that guy is. He's just some tactive with boss, you know, but, uh, but you get the, uh, we were able to plant that seed. And then later when people watch it a second time, they're like, oh my God, that actually appeared two episodes before he was actually introduced or something like that. And that, that was always fun for to plant the seed.
2: Love it. This episode also introduces Tony Dracon, who in a lot of ways, he's kind of an opposite of Xanatos, where Xanatos is charming and draws you in. Drake kind of sleazy, repulsive, and if you saw him walking down the street, you would cross the street to avoid him.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's another one where uh, we felt that we wanted the villain of this episode because the episode was um, so real. You know, the actual threat, which was Broadway shooting Elisa and Elisa coming close to dying, so real. Um, We didn't want a sort of high fantasy Or high science fiction quotient villain, you know, for this episode. Um, and we had always talked, uh, Michael and I had always talked about, you know, at some point we want to just bring in organized crime into this. This is Elise's world. That's before she ever met a gargoyle. She was a detective who had to deal with organized crime. And so Dracon became at least initially our sort of stand in for organized crime in Manhattan. Uh, in 1994. I guess that's what organized crime looked like in Manhattan in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> uh, looked like Richard Grieco playing Tony Drake. <laughs> um, but uh, so I don't know how real it was, but it, it felt more real. In other words, even though we were dealing with these high tech weapons, um, and I love the line about, you know, the the particle beam that owen's describing these particle beam weapons and that the, the laser is just for aiming i'm like that's totally michael Reed, because i had no idea that the lasers were useless you know, for it was just sort of like uh, michael's like yeah the laser. you know the actual beam is invisible the laser is just for aiming i'm like sure okay <laughs> Michael. Michael would research all that stuff and knew all that stuff uh, on young justice. Brandon and like that. All the science Brandon wants to get, you know, even though we're doing it. So that superheroes guys like Michael and Brandon, they want to get the science as close to right as possible so that it sounds at least like we know what we're talking about. And I'm all in favor of that. As long as I don't have to be the one to do the research. Uh, so, <laughs>
2: Okay, Gargoyles has made a lot of use of real life locations throughout the series so far. And here we see the Plaza Hotel. But you don't call it the Plaza Hotel, even though it's drawn ex- exactly like the Plaza Hotel. You refer to it as the Park Manor Hotel. Were there any behind the scenes reasons for this? You couldn't get clearance on a name?
1: Uh, you know, you can't use someone's business. Uh, they could sue you. I mean, it wasn't even like fight for a question on our part it's like okay we're going to loosely base this on the plaza but we'll call it the park manor um and that'll be our fancy hotel anytime we need a fancy hotel we can reuse the park manor uh hotel in uh manhattan as that's going to be our fancy hotel um so as you know when frank came on the program he talked about taking all these photos of manhattan just before uh relaunched the show. So I'm sure he sent photos of the plaza and other, you know, top hotels to uh, Japan for them to design the backgrounds on it. But I don't think there was ever any question. I mean, it's, the sketch of Liberty that's a public um, thing, you know, or even the cloisters that's a public thing. But the plaza hotels owned by someone, and if we show that there that a bunch of gangsters are living there. Uh, right under the noses of management, they they might not be happy about
0: that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the The image of the Chrysler building, which I appreciate greatly, um, was there was there some uh, commitment, Greg, to using uh, iconic new New York skyline images that would be recognizable in every episode or anything like that? Was there any yeah all the effort? time yeah
1: oh yeah very conscious uh, like I said uh, Frank Parr our, the the other producer on the show um, went to Japan talked to our Japanese partners and uh, folks that Walt Disney Animation Japan who uh, in Tokyo who animated the show um, all of the first season and, and most of the second as well um, and. Uh, on the way, he stopped in Manhattan. I can't, I can't remember if it was on the way there or on the way back. He told us, Greg, Jennifer, I don't know if you remember, but uh, but in any event, it, one direction or another, he stopped in Manhattan and he just took his camera. This is before we all had cell phone cameras, you know. He took his camera and he went all around Manhattan and took hundreds and hundreds of photographs. Uh when taking photographs was kind of more of a big deal than just pulling out your cell phone and and pressing a single button, you know, um and running off eighty
0: pictures that you're right, you know. Um this this was really film funny. was involved. Uh, a camera store yeah, was involved. Was, the film was, developing. Yes. <laughs> you're right. Uh, so
3: he, he all the film developer.
0: So he just uh so he wanted A specific angle or what have you or
1: sometimes and, but at any event, he wanted to give them as much reference as possible so that when they were designing backgrounds, when they were doing storyboards, they could refer to the reality of the place. And, and, um, and so, you know, he in, we talked a couple episodes ago about the statue of Alice in Wonderland in Central Park. Or, right, um, you know, in a few episodes from now, we'll you know, we set almost the entire episode on the Twin Towers. Obviously, this is the 90s, it yeah. uh, has a different effect on the audience today, but uh, but then it was just this is the skyline of New York, and there are a lot of just skyline shots, particularly at the gargoyles gliding off across Manhattan, where you see, I very iconic buildings: Chrysler Building, Empire State Building, um, Pan Am Building. Remember the Pan Am right, Building?
0: Right. Uh Well, uh, Greg, were they were they animating? Uh, were, were they you Were they basing it on an animatic that you provided with the storyboard, or you said did, did they not, like start from scratch? Things.
2: Yeah, so
1: they
0: were doing so all the animals in there. Season one, they did all of it.
1: They did the boarding there too. We did, we had one on our end who did Uh revisions, and Frank and I gave notes. Um, but for all of season one, they did all of pre-production, uh, and production and animation in Japan. And we would just bring it back for post. So we would do the writing and the voice work here Uh, by here. I mean, Burbank, Uh, and uh, and then send it over to them. Uh, and We would supervise everything from a distance. There were again a long time ago a lot of faxes, uh, <laughs> yeah, lots of faxes going back and forth. Um, and because of the time difference between L.A. and Tokyo, um, you know, any change took you know a couple days to sort of work its way through. But, yeah, they did all the pre-production. Then in season two, we went, um, you know, season one, they only ordered 13 episodes. Season two, they ordered 52 episodes, but gave us the same amount of time to make them oh, as for season one. And that's
0: so, we, that's, I have to say it, that it's so dumb. That's what I thought. That's so dumb. Right. I I mean, how soul crushing for you, Greg? I I'm sorry you had to go through that. And whatever short sighted individual thought that was a good idea, fame on them.
1: Uh, it it was this thing. There was this meeting where they said, "Hey, uh, how many? We, we want you to do 52 episodes." For uh, season two, and keep in mind they had not picked us up at all. And Gary, our boss, had had ordered six scripts, even though there was no pickup. Just like, all right, let's get six scripts going, because um, the was is doing very well. But right. But our syndication arm, Disney Syndication arm, Buena Vista, had not picked us up for a second season. Gary's like, all right, I'll pay for six scripts out of my budget. And if the show doesn't go, I'll eat that cost. We'll write it off as a a loss. So we were working on, Michael and and I were working on six scripts, um, six stories. And so they uh, came to us and said, uh, we want 52. And I literally laughed in their face. (laughs) Does not go over well. (laughs) Uh, And I just said, yeah, that's totally not possible. Because they also, it wasn't just that they wanted 52 episodes. They wanted 52 episodes all in the fall quarter between December it's, it's a- and December. And I said, it's just not possible. It's just not physically possible. And they're like, well, all right, well, what is possible? And I said, well, I mean, we've got six scripts in the works. So I know we can do six. And we did 13 last season. So I'm confident we can do 13. And I think if we really pushed, and I sat there with a schedule in front of me and I sort of quickly did the math, which is dumb because I'm not good at math. Um, And uh, I said, I came up with the somewhat arbitrary number of, I think we could squeeze out eight. For which their response was um, if you can't do 52, then just do the six. Um, And that was a bummer because I was hoping for 13. You know, we were primed to do another season of 13 and And it was like, just do six. But we're like, okay, we got to pick up for six. We'll do the six. And then two weeks later they called back and said, remember you said you could do 13. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, that was two weeks ago, but sure, we can can do 13. Um, And then two weeks after that, they're like, remember you said you could do 18. (laughs) And I'm like, that was a month ago. You cost us a month. And they're like, you said you could do it. And I'm like, okay, I think we can do 18 in the first quarter. We'll do our best. And they're like, you got. It. You can't do your best. You have to do it. And then two weeks after that, they called and said, the order's 52. So not only did we get the 52 order that I told them we couldn't do, but we didn't get that order until uh, six weeks later so we actually lost six weeks so immediately we had to we're getting way ahead of ourselves here i am that's my fault probably i ran but uh that's immediately we had to uh quadruple our staff and so yeah. season two all the pre-production came back to la or 90 percent of it japan still um did boards for a handful of episodes some of them were best actually but we did we created four uh, story editing teams and uh and three directing teams and you know just expanded the show exponentially and um in the end we got 31 episodes done for the fall quarter which i thought was just amazing cuz i'd said wow. like, i think we could maybe get 18 done we got right. right. 31 done and they were so pissed at us because we didn't get deliver 52 and I said at the time, I said, "You guys remember I told you we wouldn't be able to have this," and and they had they just pretended they had no memory of it. Mm. Um, and of course, they were furious. Yeah. That's for only delivering thirty-one. How of- convenient! Yeah.
0: Well, that's how the sausage is made, and uh, sometimes uh, sometimes one of the sausage makers uh, doesn't know a lot about making sausage but yet yeah <laughs> but yet they still get to uh they still get to put in you know the order uh, uh what the heck of a, yeah. it's a heck of a business and that was like and that was your baby though that's your baby that was your baby greg yeah. <laughs> yep
3: that's true
2: turn to the episode, Elisa flatlines in a very chilling act break.
3: Yeah, we've already like been been on the edge of our seat this whole time, and like they actually take her to flatline. It was pretty intense. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Get out the
0: old. We got we got the injection of the uh, what
3: is it? Epinephrine. The epinephrine
0: with that uh, giant. Which, yeah, the giant like yeah, it's just. <laughs> Hit her with a half gallon of that, and then <laughs> and then get out the paddles. I mean, we we yeah, yeah, that was, that ramped it up there. Um, that was intense.
1: Sally Richardson wanted to treat
0: it
2: as. Sorry. Go on, go on.
0: I was going to say, I I uh, I would just had to interject. I I had the good fortune of uh, of being directed by Sally Richardson on an episode of uh of a of a, a show. Uh, called I'm dying up here. It was really great to see her again, and she's a she's a she's a terrific director.
1: Uh, yeah, it's been great watching Sally's career just, uh, as a director. By the way, it was also a lot of fun seeing you uh, with Craig on uh, uh, Young Sheldon.
0: Uh, oh yeah, boy, that was and that was that was something else. What an experience. You know, and, 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 it, and, in a way, even more heightened with all the COVID protocols and stuff on set. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, that was sometimes this business is can just be so beautiful. And, uh, and, and that was one of those moments of, of, uh, getting to work with him again. All right. We keep
1: pulling away from the episode, Greg. What, what'd you want to say?
0: Okay. <laughs> I was I,
2: I was about to say the I love the entire climax at the Warehouse on Canal Street. It's a great action sequence and Broadway's confession is just heartbreaking and he's doing it not only to clear his conscience but in a way to save the life of this sleaze bag who New York might even be better off without.
0: Uh yeah, that is a really I mean? uh honest endearing moment from Broadway. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about his character, right?
3: And brought through this whole episode, is- Broadway goes from like this, he he's having fun, and then he's sad, and then he's angry, and, and then in the end, he's like, there's just so much shame. Like, he goes through the whole gamut in this episode, and we just see so many sides of him.
0: That wow, was a wonderful experience, and uh, not your normal uh, cartoon voiceover gig. <laughs>
1: You didn't do a lot of that on Beethoven? (laughs) Uh, Patrick had those moments, though.
0: For sure. (laughs) In a different way, yeah. Uh,
1: Mm. No, I mean, you know, we weren't trying to make the show that we would want to see, you know? Um, And so, you know, you get that. uh, The the thing I love is the, the counterpoint and again, all credit to Michael Reeves who wrote the episode, Uh the counterpoint between when Goliath first tells Broadway, not knowing what Broadway, um, that Alicia's been shot, and the man responsible is in this building.
0: Yeah, that's and great.
1: You see Broadway have this m- moment where it's like, oh wait, he doesn't know what happened. Um And uh, see, uh, and, and so Broadway does not speak up. But then at the key moment, when Goliath is clearly about to kill this guy, <laughs> um, he does speak up. You know, in other words, uh, when push comes to seven, he does. And then that's followed by the moment where, where Goliath says, uh, a bit later in the episode, um, Tom, we need to go see Elisa. And Broadway says, you mean she's not dead? Because by this time, Broadway had gotten in his head that he'd killed her. Um, and that the reason Goliath was so completely wracked out of shape here was because Elisa was dead. So Broadway has this moment where "But she's not dead, and then Goliath is just silent. Because Goliath has now been away from the hospital long enough, and when he left her, she was in dire straits and you realize Goliath doesn't know whether she's alive or not. And we know the audience knows by this time that she's made it, you know, uh, but Goliath doesn't know and Broadway doesn't know. And that moment when they're leaving, um, is, I think, uh, just, uh, well, I mean, again, I'm biased cause you know, I like the show, but, uh, I, uh, I just thought that that moment just uh, plays me every time. There's a moment where Broadway gets all this hope, and then Goliath's forced to take it away just by saying nothing.
0: Mm, great. Real Yeah,
3: i I do like when they get to her, though, like both Broadway and Lisa take responsibility for what happened. Broadway doesn't get a hundred percent blamed for this. Um, even though, like you said before, Elisa had no reason to lock up her gun before now, um, but uh, they both take responsibility for it, and uh, and that's a lot, that's a huge moment between Elisa and
1: Broadway. Yeah, we wanted that to have consequences too. I mean, we show that Elisa and Broadway have a sort of special bond from that point on. There, not that Elisa doesn't also like Brooklyn and Lex, but there's. But his relationship her relationship with Broadway is a little tighter. Um they've shared this trauma together and forgiven each other. And uh so we made them just a, you know, a little closer than she is, say, to Hudson or to Lex or Brooklyn. Um and uh and then we also in future episodes show Elisa locking up her gun at night.
0: Um. We
1: hadn't obviously done prior to this, so we wanted to follow through from this episode with uh, you know, not just Elisa being on crutches or uh, um, but also with the relationship continue to evolve and also Elisa having learned a lesson from what happened before and changing her behavior.
2: Right. great scene, and I think. Gargoyle culture stroking the hair is the equivalent of a kiss. Goliath kisses her while she in that case, while she's lying in the hospital bed. Yeah, Goliath's
1: kind of a dope, but he has feelings for her. He just hasn't figured it out yet. Um uh, and uh some kisses are just as with human kisses, some kisses are more platonic than others, but still. Um uh, you know, there's a reason he goes so berserk when he
2: hurt. Mm-hmm. And there's also a bit of a Xanatos plot throughout this episode, even though he doesn't appear. It's obvious by the end of the climax that Owen was pulling strings to get Goliath to retrieve the weapons for them.
1: Yeah, it Didn't quite work out the way <laughs> Goliath destroys all the weapons. But, this is yeah, I mean, clearly Owen is doing his best Xanatos there, you know, manipulating uh, not stylistically like Anadose but within character for Owen um you know going up to tell him just before sunrise um that he comes charging in once you know the night has fallen again and he's he says hey I, I've got to go uh um but this is the situation here's who's to blame and and sure enough Goliath takes down the bad guys what Owen doesn't count on is <laughs> I attempt destroy all the all the weapons at the end but we also had that moment where um, Owen pulls out a piece of paper and says that there are 37 uh, weapons unaccounted unaccounted sold for. off on the street and we saw Broadway destroy one of those right um but that leaves 36 and that was done intentionally so that later in the show again when SNC wouldn't allow us to use regular guns we could show even you know some crook or other using one of these 36 weapons uh out on the street because they were had been disseminated and were out there and gone you know um, so that again was um, Michael and I sort of planning ahead to, in essence, address
2: an s and um problem uh, here. You know, throughout the series, and maintain a balance between both real guns and laser guns. I mean, some Lisa never stops using the real guns. Some bad guys later who aren't associated with Xanatos use real guns. Broad comes to mind, and uh, I always thought that was really cool cool i mean s- some characters had access to high tech weapons and others didn't right and also because we are geeks gargwicky did tally how many of those guns were taken out by the end of the series 12 destroyed or recovered so there's still a bunch more out there if you ever get back to it
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're nerds <laughs> we do that <laughs>
3: We have we have nothing better to do, so.
2: No, it's a terrific episode. I think its reception among the fandom is really strong. Occasionally I run into someone who says it wasn't an afternoon cartoons place to do this, but overall it's one of the highlights of the series. I think it's one of the most popular episodes around. I mean, it's, it was a terrific piece.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Also, I would disagree too. You know, I think it, it is very much an African cartoon's responsibility to do a show like this. Um, I'm not saying every episode, but, um, you know, it, if you're going around doing an action show, you are, in essence, glorifying violence. Um, and, uh, and hey, I'm an entertainer when push comes to shove, So something entertains great. Um, But every once in a while, you have to step back and go, okay, what am I doing here? And and so you know if you can get a message across uh, in a way that isn't so boxing. I guess I, I think.
0: Well, but well, well, but it's a story. I mean, you are uh, you know we're we're engaged in storytelling, and that is and right. the story told in that episode is not. Uh, uh, an, uh, a fantasy. It is a very real part of our culture. And so it's, it's not right. a story that no, no one's going to say, well, that, that could never happen. Uh, that's, that's a part of our world. And it, it, it to acknowledge that, um, uh, no, I, in my mind, I think it's important. I agree. I agree.
1: One thing I'd also like to just, uh, throw out there. This is complete non-secondary, but I just think it's fun. The movie showdown that Broadway watches before he sees the <laughs> Yeah. I
0: always
1: get a huge, a huge kick out of that. Um, that's sort of, there's the, the two characters and one of them is clearly sort of Clint Eastwood based. And yet when Broadway's playing with a gun, he, he does a John Wayne himself. So He's
3: still John Wayne. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> right in there, so I'm like, like really interested in this movie. So now, exactly was in that movie? <laughs> what was the, it right was there? the it was the um, heat
2: of westerns,
1: right? And it's in black and white, but it's a new movie. Um,
3: it's new to them.
1: <laughs> it's new to them. I always wondered, yeah, was it actually a new movie? um Shot in black and white, or was it an <laughs> old movie that had a like a revival theater. revival? I also, know, I also want to know. I also know what's the deal with popcorn? <laughs> yeah, how did that I happen?
3: Slidged popcorn, like, popcorn.
1: packaged popcorn, and I I was thinking about it last night. And I said, okay, I don't know if I have this rationale back in the day, but my rationale last night was that um, they had a very temperamental popcorn machine downstairs serving fresh uh, popcorn. So in uh, an emergency,
0: yeah. the
1: balcony was closed, right? You know, we keep, we close the balcony, it's condemned or whatever. Um, but uh, in an emergency, if our old popcorn machine breaks down, you run upstairs and you start selling this prepackaged popcorn. <laughs> and it's not as good, but, you know, people are desperate for popcorn when they go to movies. So that's our backup plan, and that is my rationale for why there are bags of already pre-popped <laughs>
0: off
1: the goddamn balcony, um, but I,
0: works for me. I also
1: want to, yeah, I also want to point out the music is fascinating. Music, the score of Showdown is fascinating <laughs> because it is a mix uh, of, I mean, it's all Carl Johnson music, right? And but it is a mix of stuff from the medieval pilot. You know, uh, oh. and somehow it works in the Western. And that is Mark Perlman, our music editor at the time, uh, pulling from our library of these little clips that somehow, you know, taking out of that big score of our pilot and the, the section of the pilot that was set in the in 994. Right. Um, in medieval times, in the dark ages. Pulling out a piece that he thought this'll work in the Western. And then this one two that's very much a like out of Bonanza or Big Valley or something like this. <laughs> that sort of that uh clearly Carl did just for that bit there. Um uh, and it to me it just it works really well. Like the moment of the the actual showdown on the streets of Laredo or wherever the hell it was supposed to be. Um You know, you hear this hype music that that you're kind of like, and it works. And if you don't know the show at all, you're like, "Wow, that's a great choice to make." But I know that it's like, okay, that was from the medieval. Okay, another pilot.
0: And here, I and here I was thinking uh, it was like a Tarantino type uh, approach.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I just I just wanted to talk about Showdown because I just. Watching it last night, and I'm like, this is really weird and fun.
3: This part of <laughs> right. There's A lot right. of detail for just the little setup that we're getting. Mm-hmm. I
2: know. It is funny. So, <laughs> anyway. And shifting away from the episode, you two have worked together on pretty much everything that Greg has produced since then. I mean, and which is good. Greg finds a great actor, and I love that he keeps bringing you back. I mean, you were on, a, Jen and I were talking about this earlier, Roughnecks, which unfortunately I have never had the opportunity to see, Three by Three Eyes. I shunned him for this. In <laughs> my story. defense, it did not air in in my area for some reason, so I didn't see it. And, oh, that's and then by the time I found, tried to buy the DVD, it was out of print and going for 500 bucks on the aftermarket.
0: Holy oh, cow. No. Wow.
3: Yeah, I gave I gave my set away to my boyfriend's son, and I regretted it ever since. <laughs> Could have got well, one. That's Greg. But, you know what his problem was, Greg, is he was too nice. I couldn't handle it.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, how I have that problem. Um, But we were talking. Um, He was on Spe- Spectacular Spider-Man mm-hmm. and Young Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, And. Uh, Bashansky had forgotten about 3 by 3 eyes um, oh, just yeah. all, like all the stuff you got, you worked on together
0: always, uh, always I, a pleasure to work with Craig yeah.
1: it's always a pleasure yeah. to work with Bill I mean it, you know it, it makes me sound like I'm some kind of oh I'm so nice to bring these guys back all the time and it's just totally selfish I, like, <laughs> I know I'm going to get a good, a great <laughs> performance there I mean it's got nothing to do with like me being a good person I hope to be a good person someday, but, uh, but really it, it, it's complete selfishness. You know, I know Bill delivers every time. And um, so, you know, bringing him back to play Bear on Young Justice is like a no-brainer. He's so good in the role. He's so funny. And yet, you know, when, when the uh, moment comes for Bear to get serious or for Bear to break your heart, you can do that too. And so why wouldn't I? Um, again, I felt purely out of selfishness, bring
0: go back to fun! Yeah. And there's a reason why, I, why I, why I, I'm not going. Uh, no, I got something else to do, you know, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, it's when you, when you, uh, find people you enjoy working with, that's such a critical part to, uh, to, to just having a, a satisfying career. In this bizarre
1: and most of those those business. you mentioned also were directed by Jamie Thomason and hey uh, and so you know just watching Jamie and I together is is entertainment um in and of itself uh yeah but uh
3: I can uh, confirm that yes
2: You also did another show where you played a very Broadway like character it was 2007 2008. Transformers animated, he were bulkhead, he was a
0: big guy, he was green. Oh yeah. That was that was very very similar to yeah, a lot of yeah. similarities to Broadway yeah. there. He was yeah.
3: even big softy yeah, guy. He was even yeah.
2: part of a trio and Jeff Bennett was a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's right. Oh no,
2: it, it uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was a great show, but I remember thinking if they had cast Tom Adcox's Bumblebee, that would have been perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had the grizzly older veteran, yeah, I, I Ratchet, just, just, and the uh, leader.
0: And I just saw, uh, B- I just saw Bumper Robinson not too long ago. Bumper was great as Bumblebee. I'm not, yeah, know, I'm are, not saying
2: he cast the wrong guy. I'm just
0: saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. It's just funny because I, uh, yeah, I wound up with a a nice friendship with Bumper. Yeah. We're both big Ram fans. Nice. So. Uh, yeah.
2: And I think the showrunner on that was Marty Eisenberg, who was also a Gargoyles veteran. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Marty wrote for us for sure. Yeah, so. right. Bob Skirt. Hmm.
3: It all gets us It's a small animated world.
0: Yeah, We're
1: getting bigger all the time. Well, think of the- Man.
0: yeah, right, right, yeah, for sure. Uh, it's it's been really interesting to see the. Uh, you know, it's all the different developments, whether it's uh, streaming services or COVID, uh, uh, animation seems to thrive in all of them. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's such a such a remarkable form of uh, of entertainment.
2: Indeed. Is there anything else about this episode that we haven't covered before we begin to wrap things up?
0: No, I'm uh, I'm very happy to uh, come aboard your your vessel here and, uh, and share memories and reflections on this episode uh, with Greg. Uh, I appreciate
3: we it. were, it's It's been a pleasure to have an you. an
0: honor and a pleasure. And we hope that
2: someday in this era of nineties revivals that Greg gets to do a third season of Gargoyles and a proper third season of Gargoyles. And you get to return as Broadway and uh, pick up that particular story.
0: All right. Well, you guys take care, and uh, Greg, will see you around the campus, and uh, everyone hang right.
2: in there. Does anyone have anything they want to plug before yeah. we, t- we well. say
0: goodbye? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll plug Catwoman. Oh, I, I didn't know you were asking Greg. Yeah, go, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I'll plug Catwoman Hunted, which comes out uh, on Blu-ray, DVD, and uh, on demand on February 8th. Uh, I'll be out
2: before this goes up.
1: Stars Elizabeth Gillies. That'll be before
2: this goes up. Yeah, we're gonna. This will be up in late March.
1: Okay, well then it's out now. Go get it. Um, <laughs>
0: uh, nice.
1: It's uh, smooth. I, I wrote it. It's, I'm really proud of it. It's an anime style Catwoman movie starring Elizabeth Gillies as Catwoman, and Stephanie Beatriz as Batwoman, and. Uh, uh, I think uh, folks will like it. And then uh, if this is airing in March, sometime around this time, that is the spring of 2022, the second half of the fourth season of Young Justice will also start, start dropping on HBO Max in the spring. So we'll either be, they'll either have started dropping or we'll be very, very close in March.
3: Some good stuff to look forward to. Nice. Yep.
2: Hashtag keep bingeing YJ. Hashtag keep engine gargoyles. And Bill, do you have anything you would like to promote? Sorry.
0: Right. No, no. Just everyone be good to each other.
2: <laughs> that's the best thing a person can yes, promote. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. And Jennifer, do you have anything you want to promote?
3: I uh, don't have anything going on. Um, go to my website uh, www. Hey. And you can find all the stuff that I'm selling there. Uh, But other than that, I'm just waiting for Greg to hire me.
2: This was a phenomenal (laughs) episode, a seminal episode of the series. (laughs) I'm so so glad we got to talk about it together. And Bill, I'm so glad that you were here to discuss it. And I want to thank you. Greg, I want to thank you also and Jennifer, thank you for being a perfect partner in crime we shall be doing more doing more crime together soon and uh, we will be back with Greg to discuss Enter Macbeth a fairly important episode, stuff happens there and um, talk to you all soon be good to each other, as Bill said bye bye Xenathos isn't going to like this. I'll be happy to discuss the matter with him.